to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Focal Audio, the world's reference speaker. For over 30 years, Focal has been designing and manufacturing loudspeakers for the home, speaker drivers for cars, studio monitors for recording studios, and premium quality headphones. Visit Focal.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joe Lanasek, and A.L. Levy. Hey everybody, welcome to the Joey Sturgis Forum Podcast. I'm Joey Sturgis, and with me as always is Joel Wanasek and A.L. Levy. And today we have Taylor Larson, special guest, and we're going to be talking about some cool production stuff, engineering stuff, and talking about Taylor. How you doing, Taylor? I'm doing great, man. How's everybody else doing? Alive. It's good to be back. <laughs> I've been sick for the last uh, seven, eight days now. Yeah, you've had a Yikes. nasty case of vertigo that's fucked up. I thought that vertigo only lasted like a day or something, but I didn't realize that it could go for eight days. It can. It depends. I had it once in my life for one day, but it's really weird. Like if you've never had vertigo and you don't know what it is, it's kind of like if you stand up and you spin around in a circle really fast for 30 seconds and then you stop and then like the whole room or like, you know, if you're stumbling drunk, you have like external forces that knock you on your butt because your balance is all messed up. So you feel fine and you're ready to go. But what ends up happening is that as soon as you move your head, then all of a sudden the room spins and you have like powerful forces on your body that like bury you back to where you came from. So it's a really, really weird thing to have. And it's really difficult because you can't move you can't do anything and you get nausea like you can't, I couldn't watch tv or anything like that or youtube if it had motion it made me nauseated yeah I've actually had that before and uh I had to do like some weird realignment thing where I laid on the end of my bed and like moved my head in a certain direction and it like got rid of it Ah, so you had the, I think it's, there's different types of it, but that's like the one where there's like particles in your inner ear that have to be realigned. I tried those and they seem to help for a day, but that was on day three and uh, I'm still like, I would say 80% better now, but when I drive, it's really brutal motion sickness, but uh, don't tell the cops. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's an inner ear thing, right? Yeah, it's an inner ear thing. Is it anything like having the spins when you're drunk? Yeah, except way more extreme. It's like having an arm pull you from whatever side, like I was on my left side. So it's like having somebody push you like a big dude. So imagine somebody massive like Mark Lewis just pushing you (laughs) with very hard strength from the left side and uh, every time you stand up. So it's like you're correcting, but you're not really correcting with your muscles, but you're not really being pushed. So you end up walking like, an absolute hobbling drunk and it's really really weird it's it sucks it's terrible that brings up a question i've got and i'm always curious about how people deal with this and since taylor you're the guest i'm gonna just go ahead and ask you um so i guess since you've had vertigo and are a producer and dude in a band and stuff what's your uh, mo for working when you're not feeling well like if your ears are clogged or you've got a cold or headache like how do you deal with that when you're working on a mix or an album or something like do you take the day off or power through it like how do you deal with it we actually get asked that a lot it usually depends uh if i have like a 102 103 fever i definitely don't come in but i'm extremely lucky to have an assistant so i can come in and just lay out on the couch and and let him you know run the rig and I can just give my thoughts. But yeah, I definitely don't think I would be mixing anything if my ears were clogged or anything was messed up like that, you know? What about you guys? 
Yeah, I always work unless I have vertigo. So <laughs> <laughs> even if my ears are plugged up, I'll come in and try. I'll usually just say, hey, you know, I my ears are all screwed up, but... I also have an assistant, so it's like having a second pair of ears. If something's totally messed up, I'd be like, hey, does this sound all right? And if he says yes, he's either lying or he doesn't care. <laughs> so, Yeah, I, uh, I've i pretty much just, I don't know, like the thing that's kind of weird is I don't get really sick. I think the only thing that's ever really happened to me that pretty much prevented me from working was when my teeth caught up with me and I had like wisdom teeth growing into the worst. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It was just, it was retardedly painful to the point where I like couldn't even have a conversation with someone. So Ugh. obviously I couldn't work. <laughs> yeah. That's a week of fun. That was the only thing really. I don't get super sick very often. I get almost sick like a few times a year, but nothing has really happened in like six years. I got swine flu in 2009, and that was... <laughs> really? Same. Oh, you got it? <laughs> Did you almost die? Yeah. No. no I think it was... It, it just felt like... I don't know. It was just like five days in bed, and then you were fine again. Wow. You must... You got off easy. I ended up in the hospital for 10 days. Jeez. In the middle of a tour, too. I was feeling so horrible that... Right after the show, I told the guys that I'm going to the hospital, and uh, I'll see them in a little while. And when I got there, they actually quarantined me, and that was the end of the tour for me. Huh. Wow. Yeah, and they not only quarantined me, but only treated me via those hazmat suits. And, Jeez. yeah, I couldn't leave, so I called the guys and told them to just <laughs> keep going, and maybe I'll catch up with them later. <laughs> it was when uh, swine flu was just kind of hitting, so they weren't really sure what the hell was going on. So, yeah, yeah, like I got in the emergency room and told them what was going on, and I skipped ahead of, like— a hundred people in there and was immediately quarantined. Yeah, it was something like ten or eleven days spent there. It was uh Well being on tour probably is the worst place to get that. Yeah. Yeah, plus the immune system taxing of your system when you're on tour because you don't sleep, you're not eating good, you're not, everything yeah. is messed up. Yeah, there's absolutely no way to recover. So maybe if I was home in bed it would have been easier to deal with it. But God, that was awful. I haven't had anything like that since. But uh, that's the perfect segue to talking about recording. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, yeah, we're supposed to do that, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, <laughs> at some point. So, Taylor, a lot of our audience loves your work, and we love your work. And one of the things that people talk about the most are your drum sounds. Mm -hmm. Let's get into that a little. So I'm assuming that you obviously prefer real drums over programmed, but let's talk a little bit about your process for actually getting acoustic drum sounds. Like how long does it take you in general when you're starting from scratch? Like, do you take days to get tones or is it a five hour process? Like how does it usually work out? Um, well, usually I have the kit just set up, I guess in like the last, I don't know, three years I've found the drums that I like the most and I, I try to have every size here and then I've kind of went and handpicked cymbals you know I'll, whenever I go to the store to buy a cymbal I'll put headphones on and hit like eight of the same kind of cymbal that I know I want just to find the one that doesn't have like that nasty notch in it or that harsh ringing tone and so I usually just have a kit set up here and the drummer can just come in and tweak it out a little and then 
all the mics are there too so it's just kind of like a pre-setup thing so i can like dig in and, and spend more time on like tuning eqing and just getting the actual sound itself but i'd say once the drummer's sitting down and playing and we have heads on the kit it probably takes me about 40 minutes to get a drum tone but that's based on the fact that you did all the work ahead of time pretty much yeah yeah, for me, my philosophy is that I want everything set up all the time and I can do everything all the time. Like I have mic'd up guitar cabs, got a vocal mic, a bunch of preamps and, and the drums and everything. You can literally just walk up to it and start recording it. I'd say from scratch, if we had to set up the kit, it'd probably take me, I don't know, three, four five hours, I guess. Wow. What are some of your favorite shells and cymbals that you like the most that you found that translate really well to the stuff that you work on so what i've kind of came across now that i'm loving is i have a gretsch brooklyn drum kit and it's uh i think it's maple and it might be poplar something that they used to do back in the day when they made those drums but it's like a handmade drum set and it's got a wrap on it and i actually prefer the way that sounds so i have like every tom size from 10 to 18 in that and then for a kick drum i just got this uh gretsch it's like from the 70s it's like a raw finish and it's a 24 by 14 and that kick is my favorite kick of all time i'm obsessed with it sweet what about cymbals cymbals this is actually kind of funny i uh I got an 18-inch K hybrid cymbal that I really loved, and then I went to buy a 17-inch to be like the accent crash, and it ended up being lower pitch than the 18, so whenever drummers come in, I'm like, yeah, you got to play the bigger one on the left side, and it like weirds them out, but... To me, that just sounds right. Do you ever let the drummers use their own kit, or is it just a known thing? If they're coming to you, they're using your shit. No, I, I love trying new stuff out. If a drummer brings in something cool that I'm interested in, I'll definitely try it out. I mean, if they bring in, like, I don't know, just some kind of pork pie guitar center kit or whatever <laughs> they sell at guitar center odds are i'm gonna hit it a few times and be like yeah i don't know i don't think so but yeah man you get bored using the same stuff yeah yeah definitely how do you feel about kits that have been toured on it's weird man like some people really take care of their stuff i really don't care like i have a bunch of guitars in here and i let whoever play whatever and bang it all up that that stuff doesn't matter to me i would say as long as it sounds good it's cool by me i mean obviously it's not fun tuning something where the lugs are like all rusted and mm -hmm. stuck and you're you're trying to you know do something based off of tension but it doesn't matter if it sounds cool it sounds cool what's the longest you've ever spent getting drum tones Definitely two days, for sure. So that's pretty quick, actually. I'm used to spending a little longer than that, but that's also involving building everything from scratch every time. Yeah. And sometimes with brand new kits that I've never used. Do you have a head of choice? Yeah, I can only use Remo. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's it's funny. I've got an Evans endorsement and I still use Remos. I'll pay for them. I don't care. You better hope that they don't hear this. Yeah, oh, I, I honestly don't give a shit because I have not... It's whatever sounds best. Yeah, well, I haven't used an Evans head in years. It's just Remos are better for recording. Can I tell you the difference I hear yeah. and see if you feel the same way? Sure. Okay, so to me... An Evans 
it just sounds like there's like a roll off in the top end. Like it's like less open. Like it almost sounds like an old Remo. That's yes. I don't, I want to even say like waterlogged or something like some <laughs> kind of weird, just like muffled, not good sound. Have you noticed that with Remos, like one in every six is like a bunk head or like in the dot will fall off. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what I feel like. Evan sound like, like the, the bunk Remos. <laughs> well, that's the thing with Remos is uh, they're great for recording, but you definitely need to check them out when you're at the store or before you put them on and make sure that they're not dead because they yeah. do ship some dead heads. Yeah. Sounds like a QC issue or something. Pro tip to everyone out there who's now going to go buy Remos after hearing this is definitely make sure that you're not putting on a dead head because it is like one in six or one in seven in my experience. So what were you saying, Joey? I just wanted to dive into your setup, if you're willing to elaborate. Sure. Kind of walk us through like what is a obviously you probably have different various forms of you know, mic choices or preamp choices or whatever, but let's just pick one, you know, throw the dart at the wall and and pick one setup and walk us through sort of like your choice for kick mic, what kind of preamp, you know, what kind of outboard stuff are you using? Yeah. I mean, I could sum up everything pretty quick. Lately, I've had this vision where I wanted everything to sound like it was done kind of on a console with the same preamp. So I, I sold a bunch of stuff and just recently got a bunch of different stuff and so for me all the shells like the kick snare toms all that that's all neve and then like cymbals overheads rooms all that is api sweet okay that's cool that's actually very similar to how i do my stuff in my place it's usually either or either all the cymbals are on neve or all the cymbals are an api and then the opposite for the shells it's always one or the other but what about microphones it's weird like before i used to have a preference i really don't care nowadays i would say as long as the kick mic isn't one of those flat sure beta mics i'm cool because <laughs> those things have like the most insane i want to say like 10 to 18k click that you just can't get out you know where a good place to put those sorry to sidetrack is on the front side of the beater i recorded a session once with it in the inside and i can never get the damn thing to sound good and then one of the other engineers on the session was like oh throw it on the other side and it actually I thought it was actually a very usable mic from the backside of the kick. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Worth experimenting with, at least. So as long as you have something that isn't super flat and dull sounding or weird sounding. Yeah, like lately I've been using this old AKG mic. It's it's either a D20 or a D12. I want to say it's a late 70s mic. It's like a big square. And the thing about those mics is they literally break like every six months. So you have to buy a new one. But that's been my favorite kick in mic. And usually with the kick in, I'm not really going for low end. I kind of get it really close to the beater. And then for the kick out, I've been using a uh, Neumann FET 47, just kind of like a foot away from the head. Nice. Yeah, I love those mics. Yeah. Did you set it to any particular pattern? Yeah, just cardioid for both. Okay. Uh, one thing that I've experimented with a lot that I actually enjoyed was uh, taking a U87 and putting it to figure eight about two feet away from the kick or something mm-hmm. actually can yield a pretty cool result sometimes. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Do you ever play with a sub kick? I used to have one of those 
maybe like three, four years ago. It was cool. I mean, it's weird. The way I feel about those is that it's like, it's cool that it doesn't pick up the bleed and it's cool that it has low end, but I feel like the low end is in the wrong spot for me. I can relate with you on that. There is something weird about it, at least to my ears. Like, it feels like it's, like, around, like, 120 to, like, 150 hertz. I mean, it might not be, but it just feels, like, really tight. And I think if you're going for that, that's really cool. But I always like my outside kick to be, like, just crushing at, like, 60 hertz or 50 hertz. Just super low. Honestly, I prefer sub kick as a bottom floor. Oh, wow. That's cool. Mike. I mean, as a bottom Tom Mike, I feel like. Yeah, it's really sick. Yeah, that's where I get the most usage out of a sub kick. It's not actually on bass drums, it's on Toms. Gotcha. Yeah, and for the same reasons as what you're saying, it's not quite right for the kick, but for Toms, it seems to work fantastically well. That sounds awesome. What about snare and Toms? How do you approach that? So for the snare, it's probably the most boring answer in the world. <laughs> 57, I definitely put it like literally like an inch off the head because I'm, I'm going for as much proximity effect as I can get. I want to get like as much low end off the top as I can. And uh, the bottom, I have this really old blue mouse that was like made by the company before they sold to china so i've tried it with a newer one and if you put a newer mouse there it'll literally like die out every time you hit the snare but the old one sounds incredible man it's just this little circular large diaphragm that you can get right up on the snare wires and to me that's like that's got to be like 40 percent of the sound of the snare for me i do like the large diaphragm condensers on the bottom of the snare i've been experimenting with that a lot in the last year and i find something like a 414 is actually pretty cool on the bottom of a snare where normally i would never think to try something like that yeah my friend travis's we have one of those old 414 it's the uls one so it's like kind of like a darker one and we have that on the bottom snare and it sounds great for those of you listening he's talking about travis orban um, who is an incredible drummer. Who's he drumming for right now? Darkest Hour. Yeah, that's awesome. He's actually here doing a session for me right now. Cool. Yeah. He's interesting because he sets his drum set up like, what is it, symmetrical completely? Ambidextrous. Yeah, he's got two hi-hats, two snares, two kicks, I think, right? Not two kicks. I think he's just got one kick, two hats, one snare, and then the toms are like on the outside. Yeah, sorry, the the snares in the middle, and then the toms yeah. are all on the outside. Yeah, it's really incredible. Like you can look it up on YouTube to watch his playthrough videos. It's just amazing. So what is it? Floor tom left, and then floor tom right, kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. It's like a smaller floor tom, like generally like a twelve or a fourteen on the left. Okay, and then like a sixteen yeah. or an eighteen on the right. Yeah. For darkest hour, we used. I think we either used a 14 or a 16 on the left and then an 18 on the right. And we used those clear pinstripe heads because we were listening to like a lot of Pantera at the time. And I (laughs) thought it would be really cool to like try to recreate that like crazy Tom sound on uh, the great Southern Trend Kill. Hell yeah. You know what? I've gotten great results out of pinstripes at times as well. Yeah. I feel like that's a often made fun of head that's actually 
pretty cool if you if you put it in the right context. Yeah, it's not my preference, but for that, it was really cool. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those. It's got to be the exact right scenario for it to work out. The band has to be extremely metal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> extremely metal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No way around it. I think actually one of the times that I used it was with like misery index like a long long time ago like 11 yeah. years ago so yeah it's pretty pretty metal stuff so it, you're saying just to kind of sidetrack a little bit you're saying that you think that the bottom snare is a huge part of your snare sound is that where you get a lot of the high end or do you bring that in from rooms and overheads as well yeah i've been doing stuff a little bit different lately but I definitely have my bottom snare a lot louder than most people. A lot of my friends don't even use it. They just like turn it completely down. But I like kind of like that like explosive sound, you know, I'm going for like, it's hard to explain, but it's definitely like the low end is coming from the top mic and then like the kind of top end explosion is coming from the bottom. And uh, yeah, lately I've been using my overheads differently and more room mics uh i started doing this thing where it's like i wanted to simulate somebody just standing in front of the kit and listening to it because i was listening to this this mix uh it was an all-time low mix and it was mixed by chris lord algae and i noticed that like the kick and snare sounded really wide, if that makes sense. Like you could hear the decay yeah. and it was a really tight, close decay on the sides. And I really love the way that sounds. So I've been putting room mics right up on the kit and almost using them as like a secondary pair of overheads. And I've been getting really cool results with that. Sweet. I've actually done that a number of times as well, and so I, I second that notion. What about Tom's? Tom's, I've been using KSM-32s. I just bought, like, they got, like, a like a little pack where the mic is black and doesn't come with a shock mount. It's cheaper. But um, I also really like 57s on Tom's. I like, uh, what's that Audio-Technica mic? It's, like, short and it's old and fat-looking. The ATM... Oh, I don't. Remember. I know what you're talking about, and I forget. Is, maybe it's a 25. I think. Yeah, yeah, I believe it is. I've been using those. Been using like RE20s. Just whatever. Like I honestly, I'm I'm bored. I will I will let the drummer just point to a mic and use it on top. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> so there's not like so you don't have a go-to for that. No, I'd say for me the preamps are are more of a thing for my drums than the mics are. Cause I feel like the mics in my room, if you, you know, look around, it's not anything that wouldn't work. So it's like, if somebody pointed to like, you know, a D one twelve, I could throw it on a floor Tom and it would sound cool. You know? Fair enough. You ever bottom mic your toms? No, I know audio hammer does. I remember they recorded Travis a while back and I, I got it and I was just like, wow, that's like some insane low end. It was really cool. I would just say I'm probably too lazy to do that. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. A lot of my friends don't bottom like their toms, and it's definitely something that I uh, do when there's time to do it because there's just a special kind of, I guess, roundness or oomph that I love. Yeah, it. there's just something. It's your fault too. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. It it literally adds depth to the tom. Yeah. 
I never used the bottom mic until I went and hung out with Al in his room for a while, and um, he, you got me hooked on it. Now I always bottom mic, and I just love it. It's so cool. My thing is, if I can't have enough Neves to do it, I'm not going <laughs> to do it. Buy more Neves. <laughs> yeah, I have six of them right now. Nice. Well, I tend to run out of inputs, too. That's, yeah. you know, and I definitely am always having to choose between having a ton of room mics or do I want to mic every drum to the nth degree like I like to do or do I want to get as many rooms in there especially when we've got a drummer with a, an insanely large drum kit you then you have to start making those kinds of choices but I feel like there's just some sort of yeah like you said depth to the bottom floor tom I mean to the bottom tom mic that you can't really get off of the top mic so I kind of like to do it if possible yeah I feel for you, man. Uh, all those drummers that use like I don't know five, six toms, and you're you're doing the top and bottom. Whenever I get a drummer that's like, I'm gonna use three toms, I'm like, oh man, what is this, Neil Pert? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I definitely prefer guys with two toms. Like that's yeah. that's you know two crashes, a china, a ride, a hat, snare, two toms, and a kick. That. I'll, it depends I'll, on the drummer for me because it comes down to production sometimes. Like if I'm like, if they're not very open-minded about drum fills and they only have two toms, I've, it just pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, dude, try this. And he's like, oh, it's awkward. I have to move my arm like this. I'm like, I don't care. It sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> I hate large kits because I'm being a rock guy I like when the drummer only has two toms to hit because then they're less worried about jacking off all over the song and more about actually providing the groove necessary to make a great song and in rock music that's really important because no one cares how good of a drummer you are unless you can twirl sticks really really well so twirl sticks get chicks you guys would laugh if you saw how I did drums we'll literally like I'll have the drummer come in and like meet with me and we'll, we'll listen through a part on the pre-pro, like, you know, just like one section and then I'll get it to where we can both tap it to each other and we don't forget any of the fills or any of the things that I'm putting in. And then they run in the drum room, they track it and then I'm like, all right, cool, come back in here. So it's literally the drummers just running back and forth between <laughs> the control room and live room. But, that's awesome. but that's great because that ensures that the part is dope. Yeah, well, I, I hope it is. Well, it's kind of like that whole idea that people used to say that if you're writing a riff and you remember it the next day, then it's worth remembering. Yeah. Though I don't believe that that's 100% true because a lot can happen in a day to make you forget something. But the yeah. idea that you're in the control room and actually working on the writing of the part to where it's exactly right and you both musically get it, I feel like that is some quality control right there. Yeah, and I'm really good at air drumming, so I can pretend to do the part really well. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I've actually never heard of the KSM-32s. Never heard no, of them? No, I'm totally unfamiliar with those. It's just like a sure large diaphragm condenser, kind of just gives you a little more top and bottom than what a uh, 57 or you know whatever your dynamic mic would do. 
Actually, you know what? I have used 421s a lot in the past, but I only like the ones that are like the older ones. I, I, I couldn't get into the newer ones. I feel like 421s are okay, but man, you got to do a lot of EQing to those to get them to work. They're just like, hey, do you like 3K? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer, as long as it's 3K. not 4K. The answer is no, not much. But uh, what about symbols? Do you have a go-to method with those? Yeah, and, and this took a while to get to as well, but... I found the thing that to me sounds the least harsh because it's like when you start recording, well, for me at least, you know, everything is just crank the treble and I'm just like, yeah, it's bright. <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> and uh, kind of, you know, over the years, you're like, all right, I need something that's not going to sand my eardrum down while I'm working on it. So I got these old KM84s. They're Neumanns. Yes. And... um it's really cool. I got them from a guy named Brian McTernan. He's a, he was a producer here in Maryland, a guy I've known for a while. He's done a lot of cool records. He's worked with like Converge, Circus Survive, Thrice, and uh, a bunch of cool stuff. And just for me, knowing that he used the, some of the gear that I got from him on those records is really cool and inspiring to me. But uh, they're really kind of just smooth-sounding condensers. And... For me, I like darker mics that kind of don't have anything harsh in them. And then I like taking an EQ, like an, an API, I have two vintage 550As for overheads. And I like like cranking the 12.5 on that because, I don't know, it just feels smoother that way. Do you find that you still need to do a lot of notching to the nastiness afterwards? With those mics, no. Nice. Yeah, I, I like those mics quite a bit. So when you're going for overheads, do you do the metal thing, the traditional metal thing of kind of treating them more like close crash mics, or do you go for more kit picture style overheads? I don't even know, man. I don't think I know what I'm doing, to be honest, but... <laughs> <laughs> no one does. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's more so just like, okay, I have close mics on the hat, ride splash in china if there's anything else that they're using i'm like how do i get this crash in that china that you know i don't have a close mic on or i definitely measure them out like i uh i'll have have them where i want but i'll raise like the one on the left side up more so that they're the same distance from the snare but yeah i don't think i'm doing it right i just think I'm kind of throwing them up there and eyeballing that it. That sounds similar to how I do it, honestly. Like, I definitely measure from the snare, and I don't really stick to, I guess, textbook methods of doing it, because metal, yeah. the way metal drummers set up their kits are so, like, weird, and there's so many cymbals compared to, I guess, yeah. what a traditional drum set would be, that... I really definitely think in terms of how to capture every single symbol and making them as balanced as possible. So when you hear them across the overheads, there's no real dips or spikes in volume. Yeah. That's kind of my, I feel that's that. kind of my MO. What about rooms? 
rooms. So lately I've been doing two KSM 32s, kind of mimicking you standing in front of the kit. And then I have this hallway off of my drum room where I close both of the doors and I have two of the older blue baby bottles, like before they were made in China. Those actually sound great on vocals too. If you can find them on eBay, you should try them out. They're really awesome. But I have those like in a stereo set. And then I've also been doing the Eric Valentine thing where you kind of throw a mic like right above the kit, like right above the kick drum, just straight down, kind of like oh, a, mon- a mono mic type of thing. That's awesome. That's similar to what I do with the SM7B, except it's right above the snare pointing right down. Gotcha. And it sounds really good. Yeah, are you doing it like the figure eight Eric Valentine way where you have like a like a large diaphragm condenser figure eight in between the kick and the snare, but like right above the kick drum. So it's facing at the side of the shell and kind of like into the side of the kick. Is that where you're placing it or is it higher or what? No, I just put cardioid pointing straight down like right. Like if you're sitting behind the drum set, it's like right in the middle of the kick, but hanging over to get like a little bit of the beater and it gets like the snare and, and kind of both of the toms. Yeah, sick. it's It's kind of like how you guys add those bottom tom mics. It, it just kind of adds depth for me. You know, I'm just cranking some low end on it and then hitting an 1176 on the way in and it kind of does what I want it to do. Okay. Yeah, sick. And it's cool for ghost notes, too. You know, if you're gating your snare real hard and you need something to, like, kind of uh, extend on ghost notes, it, it definitely brings those in more. Yeah, it's like drum glue, in a way, for mixing. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for being so detailed about your setup. Yeah. So, I guess then, you've got all that going, and obviously, subject to change depending on the session or whatever, but mm-hmm. when you get going on actually tracking the drummer's How long do your average drum sessions take, and what do you do if the drummer's not quite hanging? I'm the worst person ever, so, (laughs) like... Good answer. (laughs) On average, I would say I'll do two and a half hours until I'm going to want to break, going to want to go outside or go get food or coffee or whatever, and then I'll come in and I'll put in, like, another two and a half hours, and then I'll want to do something else. So I usually do two to three songs a day, depending on the drummer. I mean, Travis is going to come in today and we're probably going to do the band's album five times before I can blink. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, you know, I'll work for that long. And then if a drummer's not good. So here's my mentality. A lot of kids will come into the studio and they're already okay with programming drums. I don't know how to program drums. I mean, I can do it for like pre-pro, like writing and stuff, but I've never really gone in depth with it and figured out how to make it sound good or be a real thing like I just have the worst superior drummer you know stock sounds so hoping to get drum forge here pretty soon uh oh yeah um, (laughs) don't even worry about it it's on it's on the way (laughs) if a drummer's not nailing and actually that's really cool if uh we work on something because I would rather be able to do that than deal with a drummer that's not good because there's always this like talk that you have to have with them and be like okay man so you came in you paid me thousands of dollars to do this and you kind of don't have your stuff down and (laughs) gotta love those since i don't know how to program drums we're gonna have to just bring a guy in and um it's cool i have like a list of go-to people for drums so you know i'll hit up 
one of my friends and they'll come in and they'll knock it out. And usually the band's really stoked at that point because it sounds good. Yeah, those situations are always challenging and difficult because, you know, you kind of have to turn it around psychologically being like, well, I'm doing this because I want your record to be amazing. And, you know, you're just not prepared. So don't take it as like a negative thing. Like I'm coming to you and saying you suck. I'm just saying that get better in a very polite way and use it as motivation and turn it around. And usually like when I say something like that to a instrumentalist in a band that needs to be replaced either by me or, you know, like a session musician or something like that. It helps change their perception a lot. I'm even worse than that. I'm just like, Hey man, (laughs) I, uh, this isn't good enough and I can't really have this attached to my name. So (laughs) we're going to have to get someone better to do this. And I do that with guitar players. I'm just like, get the guitar and get the fuck out. But here's, here's the upside. You're like, (laughs) but live, man, you can definitely crush it live. (laughs) (laughs) crushing live (laughs) but no i'm i'm not you know that mean but that's pretty much my mentality it's just like look man if you guys are successful that's good for me but it's not going to come you know with you not nailing your parts yeah i mean we have to put our name on the product at the end and if it isn't competitive you know every kid on every forum in the world is going to be like dude this mix you put out sucks man what the fuck and you're like well you know it wasn't all my fault maybe the band was terrible nobody could play blah 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 they are you guys all on forums i don't even know what that's like i've, I've never really got into like going on a forum my friend matt's always like yeah man some kids said your mix sucked on this forum and i'm just like <laughs> oh i think it was like a ch- uh what is it a chango forum or something oh, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah everybody's a fucking pro these days they think no we yeah that's the problem is, is that i think a lot of people are are starting to factor it into their process and we've actually had to teach against that you know you've got a kid who is sitting on his computer mixing a song or whatever and then like he just gets stoked about it or whatever and he'll bounce it out put it on soundcloud and then post it on chango and then just like sit there and wait it's like yeah <laughs> What are you doing, man? Like, you got to make the decisions. Not These kids aren't going to mix it for you. And, and <laughs> the information that they do give you at the end of the day is just completely making you run in circles. Parallel compression, bro. Yeah. There's like no constructive criticism to it at all. It's really messed up. I know somebody that kind of learned everything, I guess, off of forums. And they're just like, well, if you do this, then this does this. And it's blah, blah, blah. And I'm just kind of like, you know... You saying that sounds really cool, but like the mix doesn't sound good. Like (laughs) I learned my stuff by being wrong about everything all the time for four or five years. That's that's actually something that we try to get through people's heads through this podcast and through our own little online community. We kind of try to be an oasis from that kind of stuff because it's seriously non-productive for people to get their advice in that way because not only is the advice bad but when people post for these mix crits they get all kinds of competing advice like people saying do this no don't do that do this no don't do that do this and they all give this advice without even having listened it's it's really really bad and it's non-constructive at all here's the thing with that too is you don't necessarily know who's giving you mixed crit advice i mean it could be somebody who's yeah it's some guy on gear sluts yeah. looking at you know dramist what is it obsidian dramatic stereo bus compressor boutique has a black light inside of it so it sounds really cool or- <laughs> 
whatever else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be anybody critting your mix, you know, so they could be much worse than you. But if you're getting mix advice and they're like, oh, yeah, your snare sucks, fix it like this. And then you listen to the kid's mix. It's like, well, how valid of a criticism is that? So, oh, no. Yeah. I mean, if Chris Lord Algae comes in the forum and tells you your mix sucks, then it sucks and you listen. <laughs> but I yeah, mean, I learned that the hard way when I first started recording. I went and bought an Avalon preamp. Didn't we all? Yeah. And, and then I was like, wait a second. I like can't tell the difference between this and my PreSonus FirePod. What's the deal? And then my friend helped me and he was like, nah, man, you want to like try something that gives it color. And I was like, shit, I have to sell this. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the 737? I honestly don't remember which one it was. It might have been the solid state one that has like two channels. Gotcha. Yeah, the 737 was like, you know, that with the U87 was every hip hop vocal chain in the early 2000s. You would go into like a guitar center and they'd be like, oh man, you got to get that 737 and that U87, dog. That's funny. I'm on a U87 right now, but it's hey, from I love it's, it. it's from the 70s, so <laughs> it's kind of different. <laughs> UA7s are great, but those Avalons, not meh. <laughs> it was just like the trendy piece of gear combination chain that everybody had for pop or hip hop or any type of like non-metal vocals back then. Oh, uh, one more thing to touch on that whole like, you know, going on the forum and, and the wrong thing. I actually have a funny story. I know somebody uh, in a band, he was like, yeah, you know, I was doing this and that. And then my friend gave me a proper, he, he called it a proper signal chain for one of his things. And I'm just like, I don't think there is a proper signal chain, man. Like I know <laughs> the guy sounds really proper when he's explaining it to you, but I don't think that it actually means that, you know? A proper what did he chain. mean by a proper signal chain? I can't say too much without giving away too much information. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fine. But it's funny. We'll make sure we unsubscribe him for this episode <laughs> if he's a subscriber. <laughs> well, Just kidding. What were you about to say, Joey? So I was going to say that we've kind of walked through your, at least some of your mic choices and your preamp choices and such. Mm-hmm. Are you using like distressors, using outboard compressors? Or do you like to do that and then also do plugins or do you just go, you know, directly in, in the box, do plugins? Like kind of what is your little go to in terms of how you actually treat the recorded sound? I do a bunch of stuff. So like. I'll use EQ and compression on the way in. I don't really compress the snare top, bottom, or in the, any of the toms. I mean, every now and then I'll use like a DBX 160X yes. and do a little bit here or there. Or I'll blow up a room with like an 1176. But what I do that I kind of like is I have drums coming in through auxes and Pro Tools. And I use tape simulators, like I hit those and then print out of those. So it's kind of like shaving off a little bit before it prints the Pro Tools. That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah, and I'll do like EQ stuff on there too if I need to. But since I have, uh, I use Pro Tools HDX, so you can use like DSP plugins and it won't give you any latency or anything. Sweet. Nice. Is there any specific, like, you know, I, I know that I've personally attach certain compressors to certain drums like there's definitely a certain type of compressor i'm going to use on a snare mm -hmm. versus like overheads do you have any kind of little kevits like that yeah like for me for overheads i love the 1178 it's like a uh, old 1176 i want to say it's like from the 80s but uh i just use that as a hardware insert like as a plug-in and 
to me, that old box makes the symbols like it almost gives them like air before they hit. It's got that like whoosh, like before the symbol hits. Yeah. So I'm I'm really into that. Lately for kick, I've been using an Avid plugin called Smack, and I just use it in opto mode Ooh, with. Uh, dude, I love that one. Yeah, with the roll off on the low end, just a little bit of that. The snare. I don't really compress. Sometimes I'll put like the Waves SSL compressor on, but not actually hit gain reduction. I just use it as a uh, a gain stage to like push into whatever's after that. But um, that's pretty much all the compression I use besides like SSL channels on like room mics and all that stuff. What about clipping? Do you ever clip your drums? <sighs> like, like, what do you mean? In what sense? Well, that answers the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes... Yes, I do, probably. Are you clipping on your converters or on your preamps or on plugins? Yeah, I will... Uh, I'll turn my Neve up all the way to 11 and then bring the, the master fader on it down so that you're kind of getting all the harmonic stuff that it does. Nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah sweet. I only do that with uh, kick in snare top snare bottom and the toms i don't really do it on kick out i like to keep that like kind of clean what about in mix for example like joey's a big proponent of like clipping his snare instead of like compressing it that's funny and we probably both do that and we probably both don't want to talk about it right (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) pretty much (laughs) no I, i i will say yes i do something like that i found something really cool that i will personally tell you guys about outside of this podcast just because i'm not ready to let it go yet no fair enough fair enough it's pretty much the type of thing where i'm like cool i don't need triggers at all like in any way shape or form that's nice and for me being able to do that like with it between a gate and then you know that technique it's it's just like i don't know it's a good feeling to know that you could just work off of you know, raw tones and have it feel consistent, you know? Right. Yeah. Man, you're going to cause some theories in this episode after saying that. (laughs) That's You're going to shut down the forums. Yeah. (laughs) I'm actually going to be really curious to know if anyone guesses it right. We won't tell them though. Here's some questions that our audience submitted for you. And, uh, sure. You know, I guess some of it you already answered. And uh, if you don't feel like answering some of this, uh, completely understand. Here goes. Joseph Perry is asking, how do you create such a three-dimensional sound space in your mixes? Everything sounds like it's sitting there right next to you. Is that just from EQing the crap out of what you're using? Or are you doing some little tricks to achieve a clearer stereo field, like widening or mid-side EQ etc okay uh you guys know that plugin called center by waves yes yeah Yeah. i put that on the master fader and i turn the center all the way down and the sides all the way up (laughs) okay that was the joke i'm I'm just kidding (laughs) i would you smash it into l1 by maxing it out first (laughs) yeah no i would say probably a lot of little things right yeah it has to be i mean it's probably like the fact that you're using an EQ to kind of get something to not go against something else and a compressor to kind of make it jump forward or to me compressors sound like they're like stances in the stereo field it's like an LA3A will let it get this close to you whereas an 1176 will let it get this close to you so it's like you kind of find out which ones do what and get your stuff to kind of sit where you want it to sit you know 
But yeah, I mean, like for guitars, I like stereo wideners. Like if I don't do two different amps, like on each side, I will do just like a straight up S1, push it to like 1.27 on just the rhythm guitars and it kind of pushes it out of the way of everything else. Yeah, I, I feel like with questions like that, there's not a specific answer that you can give because it really is a matter of getting everything out of everything else's way, I think, when it comes right down to it. Let me start you guys at kick drum and then I'll end up at uh, vocal delay. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Riley Jackson is asking, I would like to know how you got that beautiful loud snare that doesn't sound crushed. I'm struggling to get that loud present snare drum. I even send them to the master. I really like the snare volume and bite in Full of War. It's so funny that they say it doesn't sound crushed because I'm crushing it. That's pretty much how I'm getting that snare sound. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of crushing it with the Neve. I don't know. I like to blast 200 hertz. I'm sure everybody in the world knows about that. I don't know. I guess it's just between that, the clipping thing, and, you know, using the bottom mic to sound explosive probably covers all that. Oh, one thing that I actually really love to do is I like a really tight reverb on the snare, something that sounds really cheesy, really Phil Collins-y, like from the (laughs) 80s. And I like to blast like 200 hertz on that or maybe even lower because what I'm trying to do is like I have these gates that I love on the snare that are perfect. Like they will open up just for the ghost note and then they keep it completely like clean. But the fact is that you're losing you know, the ring of the snare. So I'm kind of re-simulating that with a verb and it kind of makes the decay have a little bit of oomph to it as well. You know, I think it's interesting when people say that something doesn't sound crushed. I think what they really mean or what they don't realize is that there's a right way and a wrong way to crush stuff. Yeah. I think that's what it comes down to. Most things you hear nowadays are crushed. That's kind of part of the modern sound, but... Crush doesn't mean destroyed. <laughs> yeah. I think to, there's a key key distinction between crushed and destroyed. So Giovanni Angel is asking, what's your favorite snare for heavy, genty stuff? And what's your Desert Island guitar? I've been really feeling this Joey Jordison signature snare, the little like Slipknot one, signature whatever. Actually, that's a really good snare. I use that for like half of the Vale of Meyer record. Any any one of the like heavier songs is that snare. And then my go-to, like my just all around like this snare always sounds great no matter what you do is probably my Black Beauty. I feel like that Joey snare is one of those snares that people dislike because it's, you know, somebody's signature snare from a popular heavy band, but it's actually pretty Mm -hmm. useful. Yeah, for heavy stuff, I like it. It's, like, kind of trashy sounding, kind of, like, ringy, more high pitch. I'm obsessed with pretty much any Slipknot recording, so that's kind of why I got it and thought it sounded cool like that. So, and what about a Desert Island guitar? Guitar? Probably my PRS Mira. It's like one of the cheaper ones. It's funny. I was in my A&R's room and I saw it hanging on his wall and it was like seafoam green and it looked really cool. And I was like, I want that. So so we figured out a way to get me that guitar. And I have this crazy guitar tech. He looks like Jimi Hendrix and he's like a conspiracy theory guy. Doesn't have a phone, doesn't work <laughs> anywhere, but he's absolutely insane with guitars and 
I just gave it to him. He put like Mogami wiring in it, shielded it, dressed the frets, like put crazy pickups in it. And that guitar sounds better than any other guitar I have. Do you mind if we take a minute to talk about guitars real quick? Sure. So you are a guitar player. Yeah. So one thing that I think lots of people who are getting started recording should realize is that getting your guitar set up properly and basically fixed up is one of the most important things you can do for getting a good guitar tone. What do you think is like one of the main things that people overlook about guitar recording that's outside of actually recording it i guess people overlook the fact that guitars are the worst thing in the world they're terrible (laughs) they're they're the hardest to mix they never sound good they're never in tune i don't know i it's funny like i play guitar but i absolutely hate it if i could work on music that didn't use guitar i would well no i wouldn't (laughs) because edm but uh no, I, I don't know. I guess maybe I just feel that way about the story guitar because you hear country recordings and that stuff sounds like it'd be really fun to work on. But yeah, I mean, all that stuff matters so much. I mean, it's hard enough that you're mixing something that's completely distorted, that has a bunch of harsh frequencies and that, you know, if you're not careful, can make everything else sound really bad. So yeah, you know, you need it set up really well. And a lot of it is finger tone. A lot of it is the way you're picking it to kind of make it sound and feel the way that you want it to feel, you know? Absolutely. So do you find yourself playing guitar on a lot of records, same way that you end up bringing in drummers to replace drummers? Do you end up being the guitar player a lot of the time? It depends on the band. Like, for Veil of Maya, that was pretty much just, like, Mark is, like, the sickest guitar player. So if he wrote a part, he's going to lay it down. It's going to sound great. If I write a part, he's like, yeah, man, just lay it down. I don't care. I'll learn it later. We even had Jason from Chelsea Grin in one day, and he just, like, tracked a bunch of stuff in a song. Just because, like... Oh, he's really good. Oh, yeah. he He's probably the best guitar player in the world. Yeah, he's phenomenal. For his age. <laughs> but, um... No, I mean, if you get someone really cool, they don't really care. And it's kind of just like whoever's putting it down that makes it sound the best. You know, that's the most important thing. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times I'll play guitar just because I've been recording and I know what I'm looking for. And it's like you might be able to play a part, but it's it's like it's got to hit here and it's got to stop here. And, you know, I wish I could lie and say I didn't because I don't want people to know that I do that. But if I'm being honest, yeah, I play guitar a good amount on certain things. Well, dude, we talk to a lot of producers on here and we've got a pretty dedicated listenership and they kind of know that that's what's done yeah so yeah it's not that big a deal that like we kind of just emphasize a lot that you just got to do what you got to do to get the the job done and if somebody sucks then you can't let that affect the end product because you're the one who's going to suffer the consequences for a shitty record. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the right answer. If if someone can't do it and get it to, to feel right, then, you know, you have to play it for them. Yeah, no, no way around it. And it's always awkward. It's like you're taking their girlfriend out to a movie or something and they, <laughs> they're watching you do it or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that feeling. Well, not of taking people's girlfriends out and them watching me do it, but of uh, <laughs> guitar. So Damn. Um, one other question that we get asked often from the audience is, do you have any 
tricks for getting bass, guitar, and guitar to work together in the mix to where you can still hear the bass, but it's not overpowering the guitars. Yeah, and I feel like my answer for this will probably be the same as your guys' answer, but I definitely filter guitars up super high. Uh, I go all the way to like, you know, 170, 200, and then I just kind of let the bass fall from there down to like 60 or 50, and I keep the low band on the bass clean distort the mid band and then for the high band i put like chorus or something cheesy on it and then i route all three to a vac rack into an 1176 and it works it sounds really cool you actually filter your guitars higher than i've heard do you guys go that high i have but not very often well that also might be a way that i'm recording the guitar so when i record i'll throw all the mics as close as i can and i'll literally get as much low end as possible Ah, okay so that you perceive the guitar because to me if you get a guitar tone that like has tons of low end and and kind of sounds that way when you filter it out those frequencies are gone but you still perceive it as this crazy low end guitar it's just like you know the low end's not there the trick i found is you don't have to filter out a lot of the low end if you actually just control it yeah which you can do you know with multi-band compression or just automation the other thing you could do too is you can if you have really really low tuned guitars you can treat them like basses and do crossovers Mm -hmm. it gets a little tricky to manage all of it but uh i've done that before and it works out really well yeah see when i record i'm using like i'll have like a uh royer 122 a little bit of a 57 and then like either u87 or km uh 84 but my cab is super dark and those mics are super dark and it's literally just like tons of low end but that's kind of what i'm going for i'm going for a darker sound and then you just filter it out and then boost a little bit of highs later i feel like there's always i mean maybe this is just my own mind but i feel like there's these trends where like bright guitar sounds become like popular and then Mm -hmm. and then dark ones come in and they like trade they just keep going in circles (laughs) yeah and that's true i mean i definitely used to do guitars brighter in the past i used to be a big fan of john feldman recordings like uh like the old used stuff and um he did this one record called Josephine Collective. To me, that's probably the best mix I've ever heard in my life. And the record completely tanked. But I used <laughs> to go for something like that. And I think maybe the trend for me is just I'm old and my ears suck and I don't want to hurt them. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, speaking of records that have tanked, I actually wanted to touch on this real fast simply because you, I'm pretty sure you were part of a record that tanked. <laughs> Damn. The most horrible segue ever. Um, Wait, what did I miss? I, I, I totally didn't hear that. <laughs> Hold on. Let me let me just ask you something real quick. Were you a part of that Sky Eats Airplane record? The, um, what was it called? Well, well, have you ever worked with them before? The little EP record thing? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's probably one of the first recordings I've ever done. Okay. Because I loved it, but it didn't do very well. No, it, it it did horrible. Um, I would have to say maybe it was the departure of their singer. You yeah, know, he definitely not your fault. <laughs> he had he had a really cool image, and you know they went more prog and didn't get somebody that had the image. And I think sadly, an image is more important in in that genre. 
than the music is it, it's, itself. But right. no, I'm not really, uh, I'm not crazy about that record. I didn't mix it and I don't think I knew what I was doing when I did it, but it was kind of those, one of those things where it's like, all right, you just started off, you've been recording local bands. Now you need to work with a good band. And that was my first good band that I ever worked with. So Nice. Do you? This is something that we actually just spoke to Chris Cromit about, but I'm curious your opinion on this topic. Have you noticed that you can tell when a band is going to hit, or can you not totally tell? Like, and what I mean is, I've worked on some records where I'm like, "Man, this is fucking great! Hell yeah, this is going to be huge!" And then nothing happens, and sold twelve hundred first yeah, week or something. Exactly. And then you work on something else where it's like, "Holy shit, this is a glorified local band, and it does like twenty thousand first week or something." Yeah. I'm probably going to piss off everyone in the music industry answering this question, but <laughs> I've noticed things got kind of weird lately in the music industry. I've I've done records where everyone is just in love with the record and, you know, some form of management or label will step in and, and try to change things and it, it turns into like a big fight and, and gets kind of crazy. But sometimes you'll do a record like that where everyone's in love with it and then it gets changed and then everyone's just kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know, that person knows best. So sometimes those things will happen and then people don't hear it the way you intended. So you never know if it was supposed to be big or not. And then other times... I'll hear things that are big nowadays and I'm just like, yeah, I don't get it. Maybe I'm just getting older and I don't know what good music is anymore. You know, <laughs> aren't we all? I dude, I'm very familiar with those situations you've been talking about. I think they've been happening for ages. I call them their record killers, I think. Yeah. And for me, honestly, my mentality is this. All I want is for the band to do something that they believe in, say what they're trying to say, and just have something that they love. I, I feel like if you have management come in and say, like, hey, make this band sound like that band, like, to me, that's the worst thing you could ever do to a band. Start getting off on a bad foot. Like, oh, right I hate that so much. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I don't care if a record's huge. All I care is that we all did it, we all love it, and the band you know, did something, accomplish something that they were trying to accomplish, you know? I got a funny story about that. I, so I did a record earlier this year that got turned down by a label because they told us the wrong genre to do it. So they're like, make a record that's like X. And we're like, cool. We turn in the pre-pro. They're like, yeah, this is awesome. They approve it. Right. So mm -hmm. then we do the record and like turn it in and we're all stoked and we're testing it around with all of, you know, contacts we have and everybody's like yeah this is sick and it's you know right on the cusp of what's coming in for the market we're doing and the label's like uh why didn't you make us this kind of record and we're like what the fuck are you talking about you told us to do this you approved the pre-pro now you're telling us you don't want the record that we turned in so it turned into like a huge fight writing all this stuff they completely trashed the record after literally changing their opinion every week on it it was like one week they'd be like oh no we get it now it's really awesome and then like some radio guy would say eh, i don't think there's a single or whatever and then all of a sudden oh it's the worst record ever this record's terrible you guys fucking tanked it and we're like What's funny is we're probably talking about some of the same people. It's possible. <laughs> we can have that conversation off. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call this right now. Every band is going to want to sound like the new Bring Me the Horizon, like grunge sound. That's <laughs> oh, that's going to be the end yeah. thing. <laughs> Which is fine by me because I think it's a good recording. I'll, I'll tell you this, that the record I made, we made that sound 
in February and mm-hmm. it would have been, come out before them, but mm-hmm. the record never got came out. They wanted the band to be a straight butt rock band. I think I don't know. That's awesome, man. That if I could work with like only active radio rock style, like Nickelback, Dude. I would be so stoked. Yes, oh, we <laughs> we need to do this because <laughs> with that, it's like okay, guitars suck, but you don't have to put anything else in the mix so they can be like really big and crazy. Yeah. yeah. And the kick drum is like not playing 32,000 hits per second. So yeah. you, you can actually give it some decay. <laughs> the older I get, the more I love Nickelback. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> Nickelback. We love them. <laughs> Their productions are the best. Absolutely. Yeah. Taylor, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I know that our listeners are going to be super stoked about this and thank you for just being uh, so open about your process. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks for your time, man. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Focal Audio, the world's reference speaker. For over 30 years, Focal has been designing and manufacturing loudspeakers for the home, speaker drivers for cars, studio monitors for recording studios, and premium quality headphones. Visit Focal.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.